New figures from the U.S. Drought Monitor show 40% of Massachusetts in a state of severe drought now. That's up from 33% last week. The dry, punishing weather is having an impact on farmers and on vegetables you find at farmers' markets. Continued hot weather with very little rain has dug Massachusetts into deeper drought. For New England farmers, 2016 was a year hit hardest by drought. The most recent statistics from the U.S. Drought Monitor shows Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Connecticut still with large percentages of areas in severe drought. As a more unpredictable climate is upon New England, questions are raised about sustainability, the economy of farming, innovation, and why local and regional food systems just might be the best solution for changing weather patterns. I'm Corey Feener. And this is Underreported. Are you from here? Where are you from originally? I'm from here. I'm from Cambridge. I went to this music school. That's why we're here. So what, what did you play? I played cello. That's so cool. Do you still play cello? I play email. I play a lot of email. I practice it every day. <laughs> I interviewed Severin Fleming in the summer of 2015. She was in Boston after embarking on a trip to bring food to consumers from a sailboat originating in Maine. It was called the Maine Sail Freight. She got the hair like a burning sun. She got the eyes like a sea. she did not care for me. A 90-year-old twin-masted schooner with Massachusetts origins is headed back home today, and it's laden with three tons of farm produce grown in Maine. My name is Severin and I'm the director of the Greenhorns. We're a young farmers advocacy organization and our mission is to welcome in the next generation of young farmers who are eager to work this big project of reclaiming uh, sustainable ag in this country, agriculture. We make books, films, radio, blog, now increasingly these kinds of art stunts. The latest one we did was sailing this boat down the coast from Maine to Boston carrying cargo. So we're interested to celebrate regional coordination and cooperation between growers and to investigate what it takes to do that and to investigate that question really publicly. We I think lack a lot of literacy when it comes to a more complex system of delivering food within the region in a sustainable way. The Maine sail freight stunt had a big impact. This month, Maine's National Governors Association submitted a wish list to the president that included a New England marine highway. This would make a coastal barge route a regional reality. So what is the value of eating healthy food grown within 100 miles? Who does this benefit? Is it even possible? For that, I turn to the Chair of Environmental Studies at Brandeis, Brian Donahue. It's the New England Food Vision, so it was written by a group of scholars um, having to do with the six New England states. And it's a look forward at how much food the region could reasonably produce and what kinds of food. But if we sort of went as far with this as, as is possible to go in our region, and what goals would that serve? What social and environmental benefits would be served by, or could be served by, producing more local and regional food? But to think about that in a place like New England, you sort of have to start with the forest, because New England is the most heavily forested region in the country. It's 80% forested. A lot of New England is Maine, and Maine is very forested. It's like 90% forested. 
And, but New England, especially the southern part, is also one of the most densely populated parts of the country. So it's odd. We've got a, a sort of dense suburban and urban population living in the midst of a very forested region. So there's only 5% of New England is in agricultural production. So why is there such little land devoted to agriculture in New England? The American Farmland Trust states that the challenges to shifting the balance in local and regional food production lies in urban development and suburban sprawl, aging farmers, and high land prices. With a population of 15 million, what is the blueprint for a change system that can better serve all of New England's residents? You know, at the moment we have nowhere near enough farmland, no matter how you slice it, to grow all our own food. So what we did with the New England Food Visions was to say, okay, what if we were to, just for the sake of calculation, but also for an idea of where we could go, go ahead and clear some woodlands and put them back into agricultural production. Just to get an idea of how much food we could really grow. Because right now we're not growing very much, but everyone's like, oh, we should grow more local food. Well, where, how? Well, some of it we can do more in urban and suburban areas, and that's really good. But that only kind of goes so far. And what kind of farming would we do? What, what, what does the past help tell us about how, you know, what kind of farming works here, what kind of farming didn't work? And, um, and what's out there that's available. So what we did was we went ahead and cleared, in our minds, four million acres, 10% of New England. We increased farmland at some point in the future from 5% of New England to 15%, tripled it. And that actually would put us roughly where we were, you know, not in 1850, but in 1945 right at the end of the Second World War, so within the lifetime of, of people active and working on this stuff today. Um, so it's not like a massive re-clearing of the forest for the sake of growing food. It's something that fits within a really powerful forest conservation framework. Well, that gave us a basis for kind of calculating how much food New England could plausibly grow. And we fed all these people a nice healthy diet, not a specific diet, but one that sort of matches USDA recommendations, more fruits, more vegetables. We shifted the protein balance, you know, more towards some plant-based, more plant-based protein, but kept quite a lot of meat in there. And the bottom line is that we could grow something like half of our food within New England if we did something like this. And specifically, um, we would be able to grow um, a large part, if not all, of our vegetables. It engages people a lot. It helps people learn how to you know, cook and eat healthier. Uh, vegetables really, a lot of them benefit from being very fresh in terms of their flavor and nutritional quality. It's a thing that really makes sense to grow locally. We ended up saying we could grow something like half of our fruit in New England, which would be, that would take also about 500,000 acres. That would be an enormous increase. The big acreage kicker in all this would be dairy and meat particularly beef, uh, ruminants. Uh, we have in New England really good soils for pasture, and we have great climate for growing pasture. A better way to sustainably produce milk and beef is on grass. Right now, as you know, we run a lot of grain through these animals, which is extremely environmentally and energy costly to do, and not that great for the animals either. There's even a 
a good bit of evidence that the kinds of fats that are produced from ruminants eating grass are healthier for us. New England today produces about half of its dairy products within the region, mostly in Vermont. We could do all of it. Oh, the whirly pop. <laughs> it's just, it agitates the popcorn. It came out of the duck. Turns out they still make them. Yeah. I met with farmer Chris at his home in an undisclosed location. The wood stove was on, his seedlings were resting comfortably under some grow lights, and he treated me to some popcorn made from a whirly pop. Chris runs an existing local farm in Massachusetts named Van Garden, which thrives off its local community-supported agriculture model, or CSA for short. Van Garden is like a political joke. People get the irony in this day and age, or even back when I was starting, that the idea that what would be out front would be a garden is kind of a joke. Mostly people would think that like what's on the cutting, cutting edge of economic development would be like high-tech and computers and something more quote-unquote sophisticated. Instead of just... Instead of a garden. Yeah, what's sorry. the way of the future, right? You wouldn't say, oh, gardening. <laughs> uh, I've been farming since I got out of college, so that's now more than 25 years. Growing up in a very liberal political milieu in the 70s, so even liberal at a time when the whole culture in our country was utterly different. Sort of my experience growing up was both one a great privilege but also a lot of freedom. I studied physics and philosophy. You know, if I get to the end of this allegedly incredible education, which it, in many ways it was, I was, that was probably one of the greatest privileges I had was the education I got, starting with my parents, obviously, right, but right on through incredible opportunities for intellectual development. And yet, by the end of 20 years, or however many years of it, um, I never knew what a potato plant looked like. <laughs> and that struck you. I think it's, yeah, I think at least I knew that I didn't know what it looked like. I think we can kind of get hung up on the tools, but, you know, like the social arrangement of a CSA is a tool. You know, it's a, it's a set of social relationships. It's a way of running a business. So the people before us learned how to grow it. We learned how to sell it. Um, and obviously CSA has been a big part of that. The reality is that not everyone can afford or has access to a CSA. According to the New England Food Vision, food insecurity has risen to encompass between 10 and 15 percent of New Englanders. Massachusetts alone rates at 9.6 percent food insecure, according to statistics compiled in 2015. Low food security means reports of reduced quality, variety, or desirability of diet. It can also mean disrupted eating patterns and reduced food intake. This week, I visited the Natick Food Bank to talk to staff and see for myself what systems are in place to provide food for those in need. He gets a job down at the factory, makes three fifteen a day. It's enough to start a family, honest work for an honest pay. He says, Emily, I'm gonna build a house for you someday. And she just laughs and says, I'll build it with you, babe. My name is Kelsey Hampton. I'm the director of food pantry and volunteer services at the Natick Service Council. 
We have for salad dressing. Italian, balsamic vinaigrette. I'll take the Italian. Would you like a can of uh, like spaghetti? We have a team of volunteers that comes in three days a week and sorts through all of our donations and stocks them on the shelves. We have a storage area, and that's any excess product that we have. So then we have our stocking area, and the stocking area is what directly feeds into our shopping area. So we break it down to the three S's of the food pantry. We have our shopping area where clients can come in and shop and volunteers will assist them through their 15-minute shopping appointment. Weekly, we serve about 50 households, um, and that ranges in number. It could be a single household, um, or it could be a family who has several children. So the numbers range depending each week, but about 50 appointments per week in the food pantry. I think with the cost of living in Natick increasing, it tends to balance out people are moving a little bit further west to find more affordable housing, which is really a struggle for most of our clients. So while we're getting new intakes, we're also losing some who are leaving to find more affordable housing options. But we serve 440 households, which is just about a thousand people in Natick at the moment, and that number fluctuates. I think the value of the food pantry is that it really provides a safety net for people who are transitioning through a time of need for a variety of different reasons. We have some clients that come in where there is a stay-at-home mom with several children. She um, has always been a stay-at-home mom and she relied on her husband to provide financially for the family and he can no longer do so. So it's a real struggle where she feels as if she doesn't have the skills to go out and get a job where she's been home for so long. It might not be relevant to the job market that we're currently in and they have no source of income. So what they can do here is they can access the food pantry for their immediate needs to provide food for their family, which is the most important thing. We have programs that they can enroll in for backpacks, for Thanksgiving, holidays, depending on the time of year. And that parent could then access our services in the BRAC Center, which is our career training center, to make her skills more relevant to finding employment. And then sometimes we get clients that are living on a fixed income, they're retired, they have a medical problem come up, whether it be a chronic illness that's really preventing them from being self-sufficient, um, a terminal illness that is really consuming most of that fixed income for their medical needs, and they really need something to fall back on. So they're able to do that in the food pantry as well. And they're extremely grateful to do so because, you know, no one expects those curveballs that life throws you. What is the value of the food pantry? What I think the value is is that it's always an open door for people who do need it, whether it be some ongoing barriers to being self-sufficient or just a temporary situation that they really need the help to fall back on. Where does the food come from? So we order about 10% of our food from the Greater Boston Food Bank, and then the rest comes from donations in the community and our food rescue program. So our food rescue program is with Love and Spoonfuls, and they're an organization based out of Boston, and they have different routes 
throughout the state, and they go to grocery stores, distributors, farmers markets, and they pick up any food that would get thrown away, whether it be fresh fruits and vegetables, um, prepared foods that you can buy in the grocery store, dairy products, um, meat, anything that's close to expiring or that maybe they have an excess of that particular product, instead of throwing it away, Love and Spoonfuls will pick it up and they'll bring it to community agencies like ours, the YMCA, um, community centers throughout the Metro West area. What options would there be for people if this facility wasn't here? I think options would be that they would have to you know, there's other food pantries in the area. We're the only food pantry that serves only Natick residents. There are several others that serve surrounding towns, um, and Natick can be included in that. There's emergency food pantries, so our clients can come once a month, um, and some of those emergency food pantries, the time in between is longer because they are meant for an emergency. And then I think they would mostly have to rely on government assistance and that really doesn't provide enough. So some of our clients do use government assistance, whether it be WIC or um, SNAP, which was food stamps, and we're able to supplement that as well. So they would have to rely even more so on those benefits and the struggle in between when those run out or what they really need to provide for their family. So I think it would just put more stress on people who are already in a really fragile state financially. No one should ever go without having enough to eat. They got their house, the bank owns a deed. So there's food now in the pantry and a car out in the yard. This life may not be easy, but they know it's far from hard. Food systems ultimately ought to be designed around the idea that everybody ought to have access to good, healthy food. And right now they don't. There's plenty of people in this country, typically measured around 15%, who are food insecure in one way or another, should be a central part of the kind of food planning we do. One of the issues is that if we produce food more sustainably and if we produce it with a decent return to the producers and people who work in the food system, presumably it's going to be more expensive than it is now. So it's in direct conflict with the goal to have it be more accessible. So you have to face that directly and, and realize that if you're talking about a sustainable food system, you're talking about all kinds of other economic and social issues as well, like a living wage and, and everything else. So I guess how do we think about that problem, right? That in order to pay a living wage, the cost of food needs to go up, but that the issue is with those in poverty not having access to good food. And it, it, sounds, it sounds rather cyclical. Is, there, it's a, very cyclical, is yeah. there a way to break that? There are short-term ideas that have to do with doubled SNAP benefits at farmers' markets and good, strong support for farm-to-institution kind of availability of food and getting the healthcare industry to put more money into to preventative care that includes healthier eating, so subsidizing in that way. 
and that's all to the good. That's all, all great stuff to do. But long term, it seems to me that a sustainable, just food system that, again, has decent returns to the people growing food and all the rest of that, is ultimately going to have to also be based on people earning living wages so that they can access that food. And everything else is just sort of steps in that direction. But taking those steps requires policy, government policy, and, and other kinds of incentives to do that. So it's, it, it's immediately a political question. You know, I think that there's a simultaneous social and ecological crisis. It might seem like it's particular and peculiar to this time that we live in, but it's really a structural outcome of this way of arranging our economic life that we call capitalism, although even that's kind of oversimplifying it. If we had actually functioning markets in an example of like a farmer's market, things would probably be a lot better. We, but what we have is, you know, sort of the, the, the later stage of capitalism. We have monopolies and oligopolies and, and they, are, they empower themselves with the state. So to call it capitalism is, I think, to oversimplify it a lot, but just give it a name, <laughs> what we have. And so it's simultaneously, I mean, the welfare of people in the system is really an accidental outcome of the economic arrangements. One of the biggest roadblocks to success for the future of food is the aging farmer. In 2012, the average age of the farmer was sitting at around 58 years old. There has been movement to entice younger people into the profession, and even legislation has been introduced this year to assist young farmers in pursuing their career. Reps Joe Courtney from Connecticut, Glenn G.T. Thompson from Pennsylvania, and John Faso from New York recently introduced a bill to provide student loan forgiveness to young farmers. This is only a drop in the bucket of the challenges farmers face, particularly young farmers. The biggest obstacle is access to land. And so then the next obstacle isn't a business model, which would be attractive to like, so that people don't have to make too much of sacrifice to choose that path. Then the next obstacle is just access to land. And that's a very intractable uh, problem. And it goes right to the heart of private property and capitalism. I think that's the battle I signed up for. You know, that, that's why I think that, that so, it's, so it's not, uh, you know, I don't see that as like, oh, this terrible obstacle. It's, that's just, that had to happen anyways. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and trying to figure out an emergency life support system for the planet, the fact that it raises this question about who gets to use what land for what, it's not an accident. <laughs> and it's what we need to, it's what we really need to address. You know, I think realistically, I haven't run my business by going out and like, squatting on land, I've used a lot of different kind of very normal tricks. You know, I'm a tenant and I uh, rent some land that has conservation easements on it. So there are mechanisms for communities to start encouraging this local agricultural sector. We need public money, but I think we need some ways of funneling more private money into this as well. Through the not just through the philanthropic community and through foundations, but just through groups of people who have some means acquiring land, helping to conserve it, and helping make it available to aspiring farmers. And there are people doing that, you know, kind of slow money folks. You know, there's, there's equity issues embedded in that, like 
You got wealthy people owning land and you got hungry young farmers in some kind of tenurial relationship with them farming it. So you got to make sure that, that the interests of the people who are leasing the farmland or whatever it is are protected. I mean, it's like not a slam dunk, but still, I really think we need mechanisms by which we increase the rate at which land is protected, as in these visions, but that it's being protected by entities that are very interested in seeing it worked mm -hmm. and seeing it producing sustainable wood products and food products and seeing it help build the local economy and bring you know, young people out on it and making an attractive landscape that other people want to live in and all the rest of that. In order to transform agriculture, we need to recruit many people to do that work, bringing young farmers into contact with the skills trainers and conference programs and craft programs and like weaving together with a golden thread all of the different parts that help you succeed and trying to interpret what a career looks like through story. Greenhorns Radio, Radio for Young Farmers by Young Farmers. I'm your host, Deborah. So our anthology and the radio show, it's always about like your career. How are you planning, financial planning, social plan, you know, being happy, <laughs> having, you know, not, not injuring your back, mm -hmm. entering in with a good psychology, um, having realistic expectations, yeah. negotiating with landowners, having good business literacy, and just preparing people to face those obstacles. We are actually very lucky in this moment because there's a very experienced, established leadership generation. The pioneering farmers of the organic movement, many of them are here and around and very eager to teach their skills and very aware that their own bodies are aging. So, you know, the average age of the American farmer is 57, 58, some states it's higher. That's not just conventional farmers, that's also organic farmers. Yeah. Organic agriculture is succeeding better at recruitment yeah. than conventional ag is. Sustainable agriculture, according to the University of California, Davis, has a goal of meeting society's food and textile needs in the present without compromising future generations. Sustainability, more often than not, is interchangeable with the issue of climate change, something on the mind of most farmers across the U.S. as weather events continue to become more extreme. For a lot of small-scale farmers, sustainability is embedded in their work. There was kind of a generation before me who were kind of the back-to-the-landers and I, I would say that they really preserved the techniques and preserved and perfected and developed the te techniques about how to produce food with less synthetic chemicals, maybe none, and overall in a more kind of biologically friendly way, um, not just with regard to the chemicals that you use, but all kinds of other cultural practices. In the 1970s, when we sort of, a bunch of us started getting all concerned about these same things, we thought, we thought industrial society was going to end. At least I did, and a lot of my friends did, and a lot of the back to the landers. We were like, we thought we were creating the future that we were going to live through because we're going to run out of oil. That's what we thought in the 70s. And um, 
we're so wrong, it's just kind of amazing. Maybe the underlying philosophy that there are limits to growth and eventually we're going to hit these limits, or that, you know, in a way, not running out of energy had a downside in terms of climate change. The third goal with the New England Food Vision specifically focuses on sustainability, which means that to create new farmland, you still have to keep some of the forest on the landscape and not pollute the waterways. I mean, if you clear forest and put it into farmland, you are going to put more nutrients into streams. And the only thing you can do is try to do as little of that as possible and keep the nutrients on the farm where they belong and not let them run off. And there's all kinds of great ways of doing that, but so the, the bottom line is right now our country's food production is putting tons of nutrients into places like the Gulf of Mexico and producing dead zones or, the, or Chesapeake Bay, and we don't want to swap that out for putting those nutrients into the Gulf of Maine. We want to kind of own the environmental responsibility of producing more food. So that's a, that's a big goal, sequestering carbon. If you cut down forests, you're going to lose some carbon in the process. Can you farm in ways that, that rebuild that carbon in the soil? There's a lot of energy around that in kind of rotational grazing of pastures and so forth. You can maybe build soil carbon. So there's a, there's a big environmental sustainability goal within this. Also on the biodiversity side, if you have some part of the landscape that's in open land kinds of habitats and early successional habitats as part of this whole forest and farm vision, you are actually creating habitats that are quite unusual today because the landscape's all gone back to forest. So you could actually do this in ways, if you were deliberate about it, that would pick up some part of the biodiversity spectrum. So my last question was a drought that we had last ah, year. and Mine too. We had to buy a lot of hay. I guess that brings into question the larger issue, climate change. Mm -hmm. How do we think about food security and mm -hmm. sustainability when we don't know necessarily right. what the climate is going to bring. Yeah, so I think there's a multi-part answer to that. And on the global national scale, it looks like climate change is likely to drive the world towards a world where we need more local and regional production. Most estimates are that climate change on balance is going to undermine food production. And we've got a growing population and a lot of people who want to eat higher on the food chain and all this would, will mean that presumably the cost of food will rise and it'll be more difficult to ship some things long distances, et cetera, et cetera, so that the kind of thing we're envisioning here will become more necessary. And the downside you mentioned part of, we expect there will be more droughts and there will be more floods on the other hand. Within New England, we've got to expect that we'll have a bunch of challenging years that are really dry. We'll have you know, low-lying, nice farmland that's in floodplains that may be impacted by floods. Um, that'll be a downside. We're going to have more pest problems, and we already are. We got pests that kind of overwinter now that didn't used to be able before. We had this incredible spread of late blight in tomatoes and potatoes, which was just not a problem when I started farming in the 70s. No one ever heard of late blight. I mean, yeah, it's, a, it's an old disease that's affected potatoes, and but in tomatoes in New England, past five years or whatever it is, all of a sudden, you have to grow tomatoes completely differently. There are a lot of other pests that, that presumably will become more problems in a warming climate. 
So I guess the bottom line is that what's, what's envisioned here is pretty diverse, and you got to think there's resiliency in, in being diverse in your production. Agriculture is a huge source of carbon emissions. It's also a huge source, uh, you know, uh, large-scale agribusiness is a big source. I mean, the, the history of capitalism has been the smashing of the previous way to grow food, which was what I would call peasant economy. Um, so whether you look, and it's not just the history of capitalism, it's the history of industrialization. So whether you look at the Soviet model or the, you know, the North America model, or the you know the famous enclosures. Uh, the whole point was to sever the connection between people and the land that had served to feed people before. That was the way. There was a village system, and and you know the villages were you know the the uh, production was kind of decentralized, largely decentralized. And you know I think still for most people in the world that's still the case. I mean we're here in North America, so we don't see that. But I think that. Uh, still, most of the people are fed through kind of a village uh, model, um, but we're busily trying to eradicate it. Or we, not we, but the prevailing system is busily trying to eradicate it. That's also, it's a twin ecological crisis because you've lost the farmers who were practicing a more decentralized and more biological uh, production method, and you've substituted production that's coming from a industrial model which in a way you can look at it as the imperatives of the industrial and capitalist system is to mine the resources as fast as possible. So whether it's topsoil or fossil fuels, those industrial systems are designed to, you know, you succeed more if you like increase, increase your throughput by using more inputs. Uh, I certainly wouldn't want to farm like that. <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't see you from with that. <laughs> the whole idea of extraction, right? You know, the, the topsoil and then the fossil fuels and the mining, and it's, it's all about getting the biggest bang for your buck as soon as possible and not about stewardship. There's a lot there to unpack, and it's part of a larger system that is inherently problematic. What, within the context of what you do, are there solutions? I think it's a challenge, and I think that part of what's empowering for people if they do take even one step out of these mainstreaming pressures, no matter what sector they're in, I think what ins what's inspiring to people and, and empowering to people is that they create a little bit of a wiggle room in their life to kind of step off that treadmill, and, and then the results are sometimes surprising. And so, likewise, on our farm, when we figure out ways how to still produce food for our community, but use less fuel, we're still using fuel unfortunately, or grow crop more efficiently uh, without having a lot of fancy machinery by making something that's appropriate to us. In the same way, we kind of get that inspiration that, wow, we actually, there's a lot of potential. I started out using the bike trailer <laughs> to deliver produce, and I've since gotten away from that to the detriment of my health, I would say. Uh, this year, we're trying to. I'm going to try and go back to at least using an electric bike. So that's a an example of something that's a compromise, but it's going to hopefully allow me to use a bike more. As far as just basic organic farming techniques, probably even more fundamental is that we're not resorting to 
a synthetically manufactured fertilizer. We are making use of organic materials that are wastes in our neighborhood. In this fancy neighborhood, it turns out to be leaves from landscape companies and manure from pet horses. And so we make compost and apply compost to the field. And that's where most of the nutrients to that grow our crops come from. And that is also in building up the long-term fertility of our soils by maintaining or increasing the organic matter uh, fraction of our soil. We also hedge against uh, drought. The, a soil with a higher organic matter is going to catch more of the rain that falls on it and hold it for longer. It's not rocket science. You know, I work with a lot of young people. They can do it. You know, if you just like try and think about it and make a plan, it's like making a cake. You know, you need some eggs, you need some flour, you need some liquid, you need some sugar. You know, think it through, preheat the oven, you can do it. I see, again, this, I see what, you know, once you're involved in farming and you you know, you think, oh my gosh, it's so intimidating. You know, I don't know how it works. This is like a magical, mystical thing. This whole process of, of agriculture, are my seeds gonna even sprout? There's a lot of doubt that we come in with, but then it's, it's pretty logical. It's not that hard. I feel like that's the most critical lesson for all of this is the sovereignty and the self-determination and the confidence as an individual to be operating within an ecological system within nature and to make management decisions and to engineer systems that will produce food. And from, you know, such a humble set of activities to produce so much food. And again, and you know, consumer culture tells you you have to buy it. You have to buy everything and that you're living inside a big vending machine. And in fact, we're not living inside a big vending machine. Even in the city, it sometimes feels that way. There are so many jobs for young people that are desperately needed to get done and such opportunity in adapting to climate change, in adapting to changing economic order, in adapting to the future. And those jobs are gonna take a certain entrepreneurial mindset and a particular kind of opportunism and self-determination. And I think the garden is a really powerful training place for those kinds of operators. Underreported is an independent news documentary podcast produced by myself, Corey Feener. Special thanks to Severin Fleming, director of the Greenhorns, Brandeis University Chair of Environmental Studies, Brian Donahue, Farmer Chris, and the Natick Service Council Food Bank. Our theme song is by David Robertson. Other music generously donated by Jaron Freeman Fox and the opposite of everything, Westgate and Nathan Lake. Have a look at our website for links and resources discussed in this episode. Please subscribe to us on iTunes, rate and review us, and share the podcast. Thanks for listening.